Father, we come before your word this morning and we just thank you for the ability that we have to have your word given to us and the ability to read it, to study it, to understand it. Lord, as we look at communion this morning and what communion is and what it means, Father, I pray that as we consider this, that our hearts can be open. Our spirits would be in tune with what it was that Jesus was doing on that last night before he was crucified. Father, the symbolism that we see and the the understanding that this wasn't just a random act that Jesus did one night. Father, I pray for the next half hour as we look at this we consider what it means to partake in communion, both individually and corporately as a church, that we come to see this is not just another thing we do because we're told to do it. Father, would your spirit speak to us this morning, Father, I ask for strength to bring this. God, I pray that your word would go forth this morning, that for those who have ears to hear, that hear, and those who have eyes to see, they can see. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The text this morning is 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. What is the Lord's Supper? That is question 46 of the New City Catechism that was done in 2012 by the Gospel Coalition. They posed the question, what is the Lord's Supper? This is the answer that they give. Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death, and it's bringing us into communion with God and with one another. That's what we're going to look at this morning. This isn't a typical message that I give. I'm not going to look just at this passage and take it in context, but we're going to look at communion as a whole. What is the Lord's Supper? What are we saying? What are we doing when we come to this table together as brothers and sisters in Christ, both individually and as a church? So we're going to look at communion as thankful remembrance of him, of him and of his death that brings us into communion with God and with one another. But in order to do this, I think we need to understand what the Passover meant to the Jews. And we need to know what it is that we are under a new covenant. Covenant is not something that we use normally in our everyday language. 
But covenant meant something. Covenant meant something to the Israelites, and covenant needs to mean something to us. So first thing we're going to look at is the thankful remembrance of him. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but every time in the Gospels that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, it is in the context of his final Passover meal. And I don't believe that's a coincidence. I don't think Jesus just chose this day randomly. But what I need to do, what we need to do is we need to look at the Passover meal and understand what Jesus and the disciples were remembering at that very point in time so we can come to understand why Jesus chooses this day, this meal, this time of the year to do what he does. So we're going to go back to Exodus and we're going to look contextually at what was going on. I'm going to move through the passages very quickly. It's 12 chapters. If you want to read it someday, sit down and read the first 12 chapters of Exodus and you will understand the concept. You will understand the context for the first Passover meal. But we're going to look at it briefly so that we can understand what the Jews, what the disciples, what Jesus was doing on that last night. So the first thing you need to know is the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. That's the overall context of the first 12 chapters of Exodus. The Israelites are slaves to the Egyptians. And in Exodus 3, Jesus comes to Moses by way of a burning bush and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and royal land, a land flowing milk and honey. That's the promise that God gives Moses to give to the Egyptians. If you know the story, Moses is like, yeah, I'm not doing this. I can't do this. I can't speak. Who am I that I should do this? God promises Moses that he's going to be with them, and he's going to give him signs to show to Pharaoh that I'm, that you are speaking on behalf of the living God. So in chapter 5, this sets off a dialogue between Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron, who is Moses' brother, that he's going to be the spokesman for Moses because Moses feels like he can't talk. So, so Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh, and just like God told him to, he says, Hey, Pharaoh, you need to let us go so we can go worship God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's like, Yeah, that's not going to happen. Like, who, who, who's the Lord that I should answer to him? Who, who is the Lord, this is from Exodus 5, that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go. I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Moses and Aaron make this plea once more. And Pharaoh says, No, Moses, Aaron, go back to your work. Why are you pulling the Israelites away from what they're doing? I'm not letting you go. And in fact, not only am I not going to let them go, I'm going to make your work harder. Because I'm not going to give you straw to make the bricks that you're supposed to make. So now you've got to get your own straw. But I'm not going to reduce the amount of bricks you need to make either. So not only did Pharaoh not let the Israelites go, Moses and Aaron, their, their plan seems to backfire, and he says, I'm going to even keep more work on That's not exactly what the Israelites and Moses and Aaron were looking for. But at the end of chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, after they walk out of dealing with Pharaoh, the leaders of Israel come to them and say, What have you done to us? Like, what are you doing? Would you stop talking? 
Like, they're making this worse for us. Moses turns to the Lord and says, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. So how, how, how do you feel? How would you feel at this point? Moses and Aaron are like, hey, I'm going to get you out of here. God's going to deliver us. And they come back and say, yeah, we're not going anywhere. And by the way, this is going to get even harder for you. I think God did this for a reason. God's about to demonstrate exactly who he is to Israel, to the Egyptians, and to Pharaoh. So in Exodus 6, God again promises deliverance from Israel sends Moses and Aaron back into Pharaoh. And this kicks off what we come to know as the ten plagues of Egypt. So the first thing God does to Egypt is he turns all the water to blood. All of it. If you read the account, even the water in the barrels they had pulled out of the Nile and out of their canals and out for their drinking water turned to blood. They had to dig new wells to get water. Then there's frogs. And we're not talking ten frogs. Frogs that covered the land, Scripture says. Then there's gnats. This is the third plague, is gnats. Swarms of gnats so that they covered people and flocks. Gnats. I hate gnats. They're annoying. They're little bugs that fuzz. Can you imagine a land filled with gnats? And on top of the gnats, then God says flies. Those of you who live on Mount Pleasant Road know flies. <laughs> We don't know flies like the Egyptians knew flies. Okay, this is, again, swarms and swarms and swarms of flies. Sick flies. Then the Egyptian livestock died. Then God sent boils upon the land of Egypt, so much so that the magicians could not come out and try to do this to show Pharaoh that it was just black magic. They had that many boils they couldn't breathe. They were not able to come into the courts of Pharaoh. Then there was hail. And we're not talking pea-sized hail. We're talking hail that destroyed the crops. But then God goes one step further and he sends locusts to eat whatever the hail had destroyed. Then he sends darkness. Darkness that nobody could move. Darkness that can't see my hand in front of my face. Darkness. I was talking to somebody recently, I forget who it was, they said they were in a, in a mine, I think it was Lee, was it you, Lee? It was Lee. You were down in the water, we were talking about darkness, and I said, if I turned off all the lights, what would we do? And, and Lee's like, I don't know if you were in it, or if somebody was in it, you heard something, but he, he was in a mine shaft, and they turned off the lights. Have you ever been to, like, the caverns up in, I don't remember the name of it, but, like, you can't see your face. This is darkness. Not going to bed at night and you can see the stars darkness. And one thing that's interesting, we're not going to look at it here, but every single plague that God sent upon Egypt was in direct defiance of the Egyptian God. Every single one. So after the first nine plagues, Pharaoh has hardened, or God has hardened Pharaoh's heart against the Egyptians. He's like, yeah, I don't care, you're still not going to. So Moses says, this brings about the final plague against the land of Egypt. The Lord says to Moses, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, 
and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before, nor ever will be again. Now, when you read that passage, when you read Exodus, that comes from Exodus 11, 4 through 6, there is no distinction yet between Israel and between Egypt. It is everybody in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of every house in the land of Egypt, shall die. But here's what God does. The only way that Israel is to be spared is if there is a lamb that is crucified, that is killed, that is slaughtered. And the blood of that lamb is to cover the lintel and the doorposts of every house. As the Lord passes through Egypt that night, he will see that blood. The blood of that lamb will cover those houses and in death will pass over. This is what God says in Exodus 12, 12 through 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn dead in the land of Egypt, both man and beasts, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. But the blood shall be assigned to you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will fall you to destroy you when I strike the hand of Egypt. This is the historical account that the disciples of Jesus were celebrating at the final Passover. They are celebrating their deliverance from bondage and slavery, physical bondage and physical slavery that they had found themselves in. God comes through, and if you read the final account, Exodus 12, 29 through 32, about midnight, God comes through and does what he said he's going to do. If he wakes up the, the land of Egypt, and from Pharaoh to the slave girl, the firstborn is dead, and there is will, and Pharaoh drives them out of Egypt. He says, get up and go, I don't want you here, and say a blessing for me too. He had finally been brought to the place where he realized that the God of heaven is the God that he said to us. So we come into this context in the New Testament, and Jesus is sitting in the upper room with his disciples, having a Passover meal. They are remembering their deliverance out of Egypt from bondage and slavery. And Jesus picks up bread and he says, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I don't know what the disciples were thinking that. I have no idea. We have the luxury of looking back on the cross. We have the cross that we can look back and see everything in light of the cross. The disciples were looking forward to the cross. They still, I don't think, quite understood what was happening. I believe Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was making the statement that I'm going to be your Passover lamb. He's doing it in the context where we're remembering the Passover lamb from Egypt. And Jesus is now saying, we're going to do this in remembrance of me. But Jesus isn't delivering them from a physical bondage. Jesus isn't taking them out of a physical slavery. Jesus is going to the cross to deliver you, to deliver me, to deliver them from spiritual bondage and slavery to sin. And that's what he's done. 
You are protected from sin, from the effects of sin, only because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If that, if Christ is not your Passover lamb, if you are not covered by that blood, you have no hope apart from that. Except that you can come to the front and you can repent of your sins and ask for the blood of the Passover lamb to cover you. Paul picked up on this. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul makes the explicit statement that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So what we're going to do in a little bit in taking communion when we break this bread, we need to make sure that we're not approaching this as some routine remembrance of a historical thing that happened all those years ago. This isn't sitting around a campfire reminiscing of days gone by. Hey, you guys remember that time when? You guys remember when we went and did this? No, this is a very real, very present, very physical remembrance that there was a point in time when you were in bondage to slavery. And Christ was sacrificed for you. It's individual, but it's also corporate. When we watch our brothers and sisters doing this, we recognize that we are in a body of believers who believes like us, who has been covered by the blood of the Lamb, our Passover Lamb. We need to be careful approaching this table later today. Paul, if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that if anybody drinks the cup reads to bring an unworthy manner. He will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. You are perpetrating an act against God if you take this. And you are not covered by the blood of the land. You are lying. Is what you're doing. And Paul warns us that we don't take this because you, it's an inward feeling that you need to know. It is an inward standing that only you can know. But if you know that you're not, please don't confront this one. Remembering Christ through communion, we are remembering and acknowledging that He has delivered us from bondage and from death, and death has no longer any power over us. The second part is communion with God and with one another. So how does the Lord's Supper bring us into communion, not only with God, but with one another? In the second part, when Paul is quoting Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11, 25, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant that Jesus is talking about is first spoken of by God to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. This is what he says. This is the Lord speaking. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, but I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Verse 33 says that God will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I believe what God is talking about is also spoken of in Ezekiel 36. When Jesus says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Anyone who turns from their sin and comes to Christ for forgiveness gets the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. This is God writing the law in your hearts. He is giving you his spirit that will convict you of sin and will lead you into all truth. Part of this Happens. Part of the way this happens is by being involved in the church. Part of this into all truth. We don't just sit in our rooms by ourselves with our Bibles and hope that everything in here the Lord is going to give us. And we're going to be able to walk out and do everything the law has commanded us to do. Do everything the Bible teaches. We learn this in community. But that doesn't mean that we can just ignore scriptures. We do this in communion with one another. This, this new spirit that's been given us, this law ready on our hearts, we flesh out together. Verse 34 of Jeremiah 31 says that they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. One of the things I believe that Christ does in the new covenant for us by the shedding of his blood is he gives us unmediated access to God the Father. If you go back to um, Leviticus, I think it is. There. Um, the priest was the only one, the high priest was the only one that was able to enter into the presence of the Lord. And it was only once a day. And there was a, or once a year. And there was a whole list of stuff that he had to do in order to do that. But because of Christ's shed blood under the, old, under the new covenant, we are able to enter the Holy of Holies for ourselves whenever we want or need. This is shown to be true in Mark 15, where after Christ has been crucified, Mark says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the first sign for us, I believe, that Christ's sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. If you notice, that curtain is torn from the top to the bottom. God tore that curtain down. Hebrews 10, 19-22 is another passage that shows us this. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews talks a lot about the New Covenant. The writer of Hebrews doesn't necessarily just call it the New Covenant. He calls it a better covenant. It is a better covenant for these reasons. The law is now written on our hearts. We have the Spirit of God living within us. We don't have to go to a priest and have him read the law to us and explain to us what it means. Now that's different than what I'm doing right now, but you understand the picture. We are not naive to where we have to go to somebody 
and say, hey, can you teach me what this says? It also opens up the Holy of Holies to us. We, are, we can enter the throne room because of what Christ has done in shedding his blood. The third thing this new and better covenant does for us is Christ's sacrifice was once and done, final for all. We don't have to sacrifice animals for our sins anymore. Under the old covenant, the people were constantly needing to make sacrifices because of sin. Even the priest who was to be pure was still a fallen human being. And before he could make sacrifice for your sin, he had to make sacrifice for his own sin. So Leviticus 16 is the chapter in which this Day of Atonement, which is what Christ's atoning sacrifice for us, once a year the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, make a sacrifice for himself, make a sacrifice for Israel. Then he would confess all of the sins of Israel, one a goat, and send this goat out into the wilderness, kind of a getting the sin out of the camp. Every year they had to do this on top of the daily sacrifices that they had to make. But under the new covenant, Christ has made redemption once for all. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and of bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of sins, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ is the perfect high priest and he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect high priest because he doesn't have to atone for his own sins. He didn't have any sins. He can go in there pure. And he can make the perfect sacrifice because of that. We don't enter the Holy of Holies through the blood of an imperfect sacrifice. We don't have to make our own sacrifices. We don't have to offer blood to God in order to come in and, and be in his presence because Christ has done that for us. So when we take communion and we drink the cup, we are proclaiming to the church that we are a part of this new covenant people. That we've had our consciences purified by dead works, and that we serve the living God. One of the reasons I titled this message our common union is because of what communion represents. And it's hard to visualize the way that we do communion with individual bread and individual cups. But if you think back to when Jesus instituted this, he takes one piece of bread and he breaks it. And he passes it out. Everybody shares in that one bread. Everybody shares symbolically in Christ in the one love that was broken for us. And in the cup, when they took the cup, he passed one cup around. We were all sharing in the same cup. We were all sharing in the same blood. This is what unifies us. We read Ephesians 2 this morning. We were once far off, but God, through Christ, has brought us back together. We have been reconciled to God. We have been reconciled to one another through the blood of Christ. So communion is, a, is an outward demonstration of what the blood of Christ has done in us and through us. 
It takes all of the differences that we share, economic differences, the background differences, the social differences, all of those things that the world says should divide, divide us. The sacrifice of Christ in communion breaks those down, and it makes the ground of the cross level. We are all on level with the ground at the cross. We're going to take communion now. So I'm going to ask those that are helping serve to come up.